Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today, I'm talking to a true legend of naval history, Paul Kennedy. Paul has a phenomenal CV, but perhaps you will know him best from his 1976 book, The Rise and Fall of British Naval Mastery. He is the J. Richardson Dilworth Professor of British History at Yale, and I'm speaking with him today because he has just written a fabulous book on the Second World War, entitled Victory at Sea, Naval Power and the Transformation of the Global Order in World War II, a book that is beautifully illustrated with paintings by Ian Marshall. Paul tracks the movements of the six major navies of the Second World War on the Allied side, the navies of Britain, France and the United States, and the Axis powers of Germany, Italy and Japan. The key question Paul explores is the fundamental change of naval power and the strategic landscape that occurred in these years, as by the end of the war, the Italian, German, Japanese and French navies had been all but eliminated, and the era of the big guns surface vessel ended. America had risen as an economic and military power larger than anything the world had ever seen before. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy talking with him. Here is the brilliant Paul. Why this book? Why did you decide to write this book? Why this book? Accidental, purely accidental. Uh, seven years ago, I think I'm on the, on the verge at last of uh, succumbing to many, many people's uh, urgings and try to do... A reflections on and a sort of second edition of Rise and Fall of the Great Powers mm -hmm. 30 years ago. But I was also uh, enjoying my relationship with the maritime artist uh, Ian Marshall, uh, occasionally purchasing some of his wonderful paintings of warships built on the River Tyne uh, by my father, so to speak, at Swan Hunter Yard. And then listening with some uh, you know, real delighted. Ian saying that he was doing a further set of maritime paintings, original paintings, with settings across the globe, but uh, of aircraft carriers in the Second World War. And, uh, 
and that was to be part of a permanent exhibit at the uh, at the USS Intrepid Carrier Museum in New York City when mm -hmm. the Intrepid came back from a two-year, three-year refit. In the midst of that, that plan went wrong. The idea of a permanent exhibition of Ian's carrier and carrier aircraft paintings uh, fell to the floor. And uh, to encourage him, because he had paintings also of battleships, cruisers, small ships, I suggested that he put together a nice uh, illustrated history book, that would be his fifth or sixth, on uh, fighting warships of the Second World War. And if he did that, I would write the foreword. And as time went on, I discovered that he, while Ian was pretty good at writing and pretty good at doing more lovely paintings, say the Ark Royal coming out of Grand Harbor of Malta, for example, the Sheffield of Gibraltar, uh, he was slowed down on the text idea. So I sort of got sucked in to agreeing to write a simple text for fighting warships. And then uh, as we were coming together in a collaboration and working with Yale University Press as being the best publisher to do these, a book which integrated these lovely uh, original paintings with a narrative text and embedded them in the course of a narrative, uh, Ian had either a heart attack or major stroke and died uh, at Christmas time a few years ago. So this is an accident. I uh, had a choice of either continuing with this project, but without Ian, or just uh, closing it up. And by that stage, I was, I was fairly invested. I felt I could return to doing the rise and fall of the great powers, maybe in another couple of years or so. And so I took over this, working with Yale University Press. And halfway through that project, I decided that I was going to make the book something more substantial. <laughs> yeah, it is not a simple text on fighting ships, which it's is not where a, it started off. <laughs> it's not a simple text. So, so I insert that interesting chapter eight, which is not a, has none of Ian's lovely paintings in. It's about, it's trying to look at the shift in the global power balances when the yeah. United States economy really gets underway from 1943 onwards. So you have something of a, of a book which is a, a polyglot book. It looks like a coffee table book, perhaps, but it's also a book for thinking about hegemonic war. Yeah, absolutely. It is fantastic. What, there's also a, a good deal of rise and fall themes within this book. Why are you so interested in rise and fall stories? Because it's, it's certainly something you keep coming back to. It, it may be, as uh, some of my friends from the northeast of England, including Sting, who went to my grammar school, would say that uh, this, is, this suggests somebody coming from a uh, British industrial heritage where when you were born, there was still a, an empire across the world. There was still a very large Royal Navy. The ships were still being built. And in the course of a, like a single person's lifetime from Attlee coming in in 1945 to the current shenanigans of that silly lady, Mrs. Truss, uh, there has been a story on the British side of something akin to what I wrote about many years ago in The Rise and Fall of British Naval Mastery, which I returned to in a more substantive, comparative way 
in Rise and Fall of the Great Powers, which I escaped from by rise, writing books on global 21st century trends and, um, and uh, the Parliament of Man and the UN and Engineers of Victory, but I have somehow returned to it in an underlying way in this book, Victory at Sea. Yeah. So maybe it does all, t- it taps back to the rise and fall of shipbuilding on the Tyne. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, if you think about it, the, uh, there's a beautiful uh, painting in the book, uh, an Ian Marshall painting of the last of the big battleships that were built on the Tyne, HMS Anson, one of the King George V class, and it's coming down past the Walker Naval Yard, past the row houses of Wall's End, heading out to you know, join the home fleet. It would be there in the British Pacific Fleet in 1944-45. It was almost the last, symbolically, uh, the last of the, of the, the story of uh, British shipbuilding, a large battle fleet, uh, the Pax Britannica, if you like it, all slowly, slowly coming to an end. So I suppose there is something in that, but it's also to do with not, it's not a British elegiac book, if, you, if you're suggesting that. It's really about who takes over. So it's not so much the decline of, and the destruction of the European naval powers and the slow uh, overextension of the British. It's a, it's a story really of how from 1943 onwards, a huge new navy of unbelievable dimensions and numbers comes to take over the Pacific and then the world order. Mm. And you've definitely got you. I mean, that's where the, the key moment is in changes in 1943. But the book starts in 1936. Um, so let's think about the ways that the strategic landscape was altered from 1936 in the in the run up to that kind of key moment in 43 yes and to help a reader i suggest in the um, in in the preface that they might consider all, all of the uncontested aspects about where naval power and international power is in, in say a, a year or two before the second world war uh in naval terms battleships are still key at least all the admiralties think that's so. The, the, the carrier admirals don't, but they are the second level. Um, the largest fleet in the world, just mind you, but the largest fleet in the world is the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy has a whole host of bases across the globe, and some of Ian's paintings are showing these, these bases and the, the warships coming in and out. There's a sea power challenge by three rising fascist navies, the Italian, the Japanese, and the, and the German. But there's a substantial, if you like, pro-Western set of navies, the U.S. Navy and its isolationism, the British Navy and the French. Uh, and, and air power has not yet shown itself to be what it's going to be as the war unfolds. So there's a lot of things happening there. Uh, Europe is still the center of the world. The colonial European empires still exist. Uh, uh, the nicest commission for a young man and a, a young officer in the Royal Navy might be to be sent on a light cruiser to the Mediterranean fleet so you could enjoy yourself. Coming. Exactly what happened to my grandfather. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Is that, yeah. Well, you see, you, you make port visits to, to Naples and to Athens. You come in and out of Alexandria. 
you have a whale of a good time. Uh, the world has not changed, so it looks, since the age of Queen Victoria. Uh, the fascist German challenge, especially with their air power, is going to do something there. It's going to punish the Royal Navy all the way around the coasts of Europe in 1940, in Norway, and then again off the Dunkirk coastlands, and then again off Crete and Greece. And um, the Royal Navy is going to be so super extended, it will not be able to hold on to its Singapore base and Malay and Hong Kong just two years later. It's such an enormously fast transformation in the story of sea power and the great naval powers that were there before 36 and are simply not there when the atomic bombers dropped less than 10 years later. Yeah, so we've got Italians, Germans, Japanese, French. The, the, the entire landscape is then without them. Without them. Uh, there's attempts, of course, by the French Navy in successive decades and administrations say de Gaulle to try to rebuild, to get at least up the size of a Royal Navy. A Japanese Navy is forsworn from large ships because of its uh, you know, post-1945 treaty regulations. Uh, the German Navy is eliminated. The Italian Navy surrenders. Uh, you're, it's, 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 you could say there's a, a comparison with the state uh, of the Royal Navy uh, in regard to all of the other navies in 1815, 1816. But even that isn't, show, isn't true. The Royal Navy in the early 19th century is very worried about what these big American uh, frigates could do and rather worried about the return of, of European navies. Uh, Pax Americana is significantly bigger than the Pax Britannica. Mm, that's interesting. So what Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Why was 1943 so crucial to this change? Uh, my argument, and then, then those, those of you who know certain Kennedy books will shake their heads on this. My argument is you have to go and look at the underlying statistical and productive 
uh, uh, sh shifts and uh, uh, economic transformations and technological transformations of the war itself. In 1939 and even in 1941, the US economy was not on a war economy footing. Uh, it was the biggest economy in the world. The Congress had, after the fall of France, worriedly given enormous uh, you know, grants of, of funds to build the biggest Navy in the world. But that takes time. As I think most people here know, in those days, it took about six years to construct a large battleship from beginning to end. It was just a little bit shorter for aircraft carriers. So it's only after June 1943, you might use this as a symbolic change time in the year, that uh, the first of the brand new Essex-class fleet aircraft carriers arrives in Pearl Harbor to join Nimitz's Pacific Fleet. There's only one existing US carrier in the Pacific in June 1943. When the Essex steams into Pearl, it's followed a month later by a second Essex-class carrier, then a month later, a third. And so every month, there's a new aircraft carrier joining the Pacific Fleet. Wow. But when you start to do significant operations across the Central Pacific, uh, the Gilberts, the Marianas, uh, uh, the attacks on the, on, the, on the Japanese aircraft carrier fleet in early 1944, the US Pacific Fleet has 10, 12 and more aircraft carriers at its disposal. It's, it's absolutely astonishing transformation year. Mm. And what was the Japanese production like at the same time? So I wish I knew a great and substantive book on the history of Japanese naval output in the Second World War. In fact, I had to go back to things like, you know, Jane's fighting ships, 1943, 1944, to see what was happening. And not much was happening. The Japanese had created the world's best and most flexible and far-ranging attacking aircraft carrier fleet in the world navies by 1941, and they used it to enormous effect, of course, in the attack on Pearl Harbor, and then rushing down to, to enter the uh, Indian Ocean in April 1940, 1930, 1942, uh, and then ranging far afield until the setbacks of a small uh, battle of the Coral Sea and the more substantive battle of um, Midway, where they lose four full fleet carriers. And then you look and say, well, what is coming to replace the Japanese carrier fleet after 42, 43, in the way the US carrier navy is being completely rebuilt? And the answer is very little indeed. Some large battleships being hastily transformed to be carriers, some uh, older, uh, long-hulled uh, merchant ships being turned into smaller carriers. The Japanese simply do not have a productive capacity to build a new navy after Midway. Yeah, I'm going to play devil's advocate a bit here, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean that the defeat of Japan was inevitable. The crushing of Japan was inevitable. Clearly, the Japanese Navy and the Imperial High Command in Tokyo thought that it was not. They had believed that after the early strikes and the 
the beating away of the uh, Anglo-American fleets in 41, 42, if they could secure and build up an external uh, 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 defensive rim all the way from the uh, Alaskan, from the Aleutian Islands in, uh, in Alaska, all the way down through to New Guinea and then onto Burma, you could hold that ring, wait for the Americans to come, keep beating them back until they agreed at least to some compromise peace, which uh, in the optimist scenario would recognize Japan's special place in East Asia and then go away so we had the victory. At the minimalist, you would agree to get a compromise peace where perhaps you had to fall back, but you were not having any you know, demolition of Japanese power or anything else to, heavens forbid, to do with the emperor. So there were people in Tokyo who thought that the war was winnable in the sense that a defensive war was winnable. Um, inevitable, uh, this is a question which is put so much in A-level history. You know, was the coming of the First World War inevitable? And uh, you're supposed to dodge that one and say, nothing in history is inevitable. All I can say, um, being believing in the, you know, the, the, the art of the realistic here, that if a angry United States was beginning to move across the Central and Southwest Pacific after 1943, with now the largest air force and the largest Navy and fleet carrier Navy and supply chain Navy in the world, what was inevitable is that this American force was going to strike hard at those Japanese positions and probably roll them up and advance towards the Philippines and onto Tokyo. Nobody knew at the time, of course, in 1943, that there was something being developed in the Southwest deserts of the United States called the atomic bomb. So that's off our description of the inevitability of things. Yeah, fascinating. I really enjoyed your chapter on the causation chain. I wasn't expecting to read that. Can you talk to us a little bit about that chapter? There is a uh, illustrated uh, appendix in 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 Victory at Sea, which uh, to my uh, my my three uh, you know irregular and and supercritical sons was called a balloon chain or a sausage chain. And all <laughs> I was trying to do, well before we now have this debate about uh, supply chains from China and Taiwan semiconductors leading across to the, the end result being American cars or American or, or your new handheld telephones. That's a supply chain. The supply chain here was the absolutely vital uh, material of uh, aluminium, as it's pronounced in one part of the Atlantic, and aluminum on the other part of the Atlantic. Um, which was necessary to be, it was, a, it was a vital part of all of the new aircraft. Uh, the aircraft uh, would have uh, aluminum propellers. They'd have aluminum parts all the way around a uh, part of the, uh, of the, the steel engine. They, they uh, were, well, where do you get all of this aluminum from? It doesn't really matter. And Kennedy is, argues that there's a wonderful way of understanding the uh, the material story 
behind the American victory in the Pacific. And it's to start with uh, bauxite or mine in Dutch Suriname or, or, or uh, Guyana in South America, move that ore in a, a ore ship across to the Mississippi, move it up the Mississippi to the American uh, gigantic factory of Alcoa, the Aluminum Corporation of America, turn it into slabs of aluminium, send the slabs out to a whole variety of, of sub-producers, have the particular parts of all made out of aluminum uh, sent to their little factories around the giant Pratt & Whitney engine factory in Hartford, Connecticut, have the engine transported over to the Grumman factory in, uh, in, in Long Island. And the end result is, of course, those in fantastically successful American aircraft carriers, the Hellcats, which shoot down 90% of the Japanese aircraft in the Pacific War. And the Hellcats, when they get on SS-class carriers and fly to the Pacific, shoot out the Japanese uh, aerial navy in the Great Marianas Turkey shoot. And you can look at a 10-point chain from the Bauxite Hills to the victory in the Pacific and say, aha, any disruption of this chain along the way would have meant that the aircraft production could not have occurred because the engines would not have been there or the propellers would not have been there. It's a fascinating way of thinking about maritime history in the broader sense. So let me go on one more minute. I've asked um, Evan Wilson at the Naval War College this question. Could you do a similar supply chain like bubble illustration or sausage illustration of particular naval stores in the Baltic in the late 18th century and how those uh, pines, how those uh, uh, su supplies of the, ba the backdrop core to the great British shipbuilding industry in the age of sail could be tracked all the way through to the victory and the fighting Temeraire. But when you say, where do the sails come from? Where does the flax come from? Where do the uh, cross beams come from? You would need a supply chain of your own. Think about it. There's something more to naval history than just admirals spotting the enemy fleet and going into action. Yeah. To me, the obvious answer to that is that without any pines, you've got no deck planks. And we certainly didn't have enough pine forests to make the deck planks. We had the oak, or we had some of the oak, but the, the pine was a problem. Case in point, uh, right now, as you may know from looking at anxious articles in, say, the, uh, especially American press, right now they're beginning to discover that most of the world's microchips are made in a single factory in Taiwan. And it has become absolutely strategically critical because if that went, then all of U.S. industry would start collapsing in the next month. Man, talk about supply chains in peacetime as well as in wartime. Well, absolutely fascinating stuff. Paul, thank you very much indeed for your time. It's, uh, I'm really delighted to be with you. I'm really delighted to talk about victory at sea and the different levels of sea power. Thanks for inviting me. It was great.
Thank you all so much for listening. Now, if you're interested in this period, do please check out our fantastic YouTube channel, where you will find, among other things, a 3D animation of the Shokaku, one of the Japanese aircraft carriers that launched the attack on Pearl Harbor. And if you're interested in the deeper history of 20th century sea power, there is much more, including an animated ship plan of the extraordinary K-class submarines and an eyewitness battle plan of the Battle of Tsushima brought to life. That's all for now. Do please remember that the podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. You can find the History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.co.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join up and there really is no better way to spend a little bit of money. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.